Hassan in Swahili dedicated to all you beautiful people around the world. We say Jumbo. Global Mission Podcast. My name is Richard Lewis, your host, as we discuss the issues of worldwide missions and the task of the Great Commission. Well, today's guest is a friend of mine by the name of Tom Steffen. Tom and I first met at Biola University, and uh, we were both taking the uh, graduate level course uh, in missions. And so it's been a while since I've talked with Tom. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, this, this visit. So this is Tom St- uh, Stefan. Tom, how are you doing? Doing great. And great to talk to you again after all these years. Yeah, it's <laughs> been a while. Well, uh, as I said, we met uh, in uh, Biola University. Um, I'm not sure it was probably the late 80s, something like yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, you were, were you still in the Philippines at that time? Yeah. And I was with New Tribes Mission at that point. Okay. How long were you with uh, New Tribes in the Philippines? We were 15 years in the Philippines and uh, 20 years with New Tribes. Okay. Great. Now Ethnos. Yeah. Now Ethnos 360. How did you get to the Philippines? Why? You know, I always ask uh, uh, each guest that we have uh, a little bit of the story of, you know, their journey and mission. So tell us what uh, kind of prompted you to maybe going to missions and the Philippines specifically. Yeah. I grew up in a family with a fa- in a family that uh, was very much in the missions and had a lot of missionaries stay over at our house. And so I was introduced to all parts of the world very early and got all kinds of trinkets from around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sister is one year older than I, when she graduated from high school, went to new tribes. And uh, later on, I would follow her steps. Um, the, how we got to the Philippines was that the, a couple actually from our home church was with Wycliffe, uh, Bible Trans or Summer Institute of Linguistics, I should say. And, uh, so they were working with the Ifogao in the Philippines, which is central Luzon and asked if you wanted to come and we wanted to come and do the church planning. So that's how we ended up in the Philippines then and worked with them. And, um, they now have the. Actually, there's five different Ifugao groups, and every one of them now have their own complete Bible. Hmm. And so they have their own association of churches. So that that group of people has very been very much been blessed by God. Oh, that's great. I think, uh, I don't know if it was part of your dissertation, your doctoral dissertation, but I remember that maybe your first book that you published was uh, Passing the Baton, and I'm assuming that had to do with something... Uh, your time in uh, the Philippines, am I guessing right? You're guessing very much right. Um, one of the things I found out when we got to the Philippines was that um, I, like a new missionary, you ask a lot of questions and <laughs> some of them get you into trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I asked, uh, where of all the tribal groups that we are working with here in the Philippines, which I think around 20 at that point, um, how many have we turned over to the uh, indigenous people to be able to run their own churches? 
And because we, had, we were taught the three selves, self-governing, self-propagating, self-supporting, we were taught work yourself out of a job. And so I was just kind of following up on that. And to my surprise, after 20 plus years of work, and these are very difficult situations in the Philippines, you know, they don't have a McDonald's around the corner mm. where these people are staying. And um, nobody after 20 plus years had turned the work over to the local people. Mm. And I'm thinking, what? Mm -hmm. There is a major disconnect between training and about reality here in the Philippines. Mm. And fortunately, we had a great, uh, Bob Gustafson was the chair, field chair. He, he called me in and started asking me questions. And, you know, one of the things he said, you know, when new missionaries come, they ask a lot of questions. Sometimes you just have to wait a while to figure out what the answers are going to be. It takes you a while to learn the cultures here in the Philippines. And I think, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and, and of course, he knew I was asking the questions about exit strategy. And um, he said, you know, also new missionaries ask questions that we who've been here too long uh, don't even ask anymore. Mm. It's like well, you, we don't carry our cameras anymore because we've been here long enough to know what the pictures are. So, mm. And he says, um, I want you, this is a green missionary, okay, just getting here to the Philippines. I said, I want you to come up with an idea how we can have exit strategy and turn these local, turn these uh, tribal churches over the tribal people. Hmm. And I think, whoa, <laughs> this is uh, there's people here have been 15 years, you know, and there's a pecking order in the mission field. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm supposed to come. Yeah. And I want you to present it in the next, uh, it was two years out. Then two years from now, I want you to present it at our annual field conference. Hmm. And 120 plus missionaries would be there, expats hmm. from all over and Filipinos as well. And I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. But he, he really protected me and uh, he just didn't throw me out there, you know. But um, that was where he traveled with me to the Ifaga. We walked from north to south in it, trying to find a place to locate. <clears throat> so he's a very hands on guy as well. And one of the things I started realizing. You know what they did? They came in here, they evangelized, great. Then they discipled, great. Then they did leadership development, great. Then they did more leadership development. And then more. <laughs> leadership development never stopped. They never quite were there where they should be. Mm. And I started to realize they never had an exit strategy. They didn't know when they reached their place when this should be turned over. Mm. And so uh, we called it phase out in the book, but it's exit strategy is what it was. And so that became my dissertation. And then I expanded it and <clears throat> it became uh, passing the baton. Whoa. Well, I'm assuming that uh, the things in the Philippines uh, have changed quite a bit. There is more national leadership and ownership than it was maybe when you were there, huh? Yes, definitely has changed. Definitely. Yeah. And the, actually, the Filipinos have their own organization now mm. in the tribal setting. Yeah, they have their own. And n now exit strategy is kind of a, yes, we don't even, I mean, it's not, it's one of those this is what we do thing, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, there are still many places in the world where uh, I don't think the exit strategy is well-defined <laughs> and I could give uh, illustrations because uh, you and I have both traveled uh, considerably throughout the world and uh, we've seen, seen that, but I do believe that that's something maybe we need to be talking more about when we are 
uh, equipping uh, future missionaries is, uh, okay, this is how you begin. And we talk an awful lot about how to begin, you know, language school mm -hmm. and all of those things, learning culture. But uh, one of our uh, mutual friends, uh, Dwight Smith, used to talk about mm -hmm. Z thinking. What does it look like at the end? And yeah. by the way, how long <laughs> is that end? Is it 10 years, 15 years? Uh, I, I remember there was uh, a group of uh, people in Kenya uh, with a different denomination. And they came in and they said, we're here for 10 years. And they were very much defined uh, uh, in that approach. Now, it ended up... Uh, they extended it, I think, to 12 to 13 years, but nevertheless, uh -huh. they did yeah. have a, an exit strategy, and that's something that we haven't done. Well, you left the Philippines, uh, and from there, what happened with your life? Uh, yeah, I came back and uh, decided I'm going to do my doctorate there at, um, at Biola, and that's where I met you and Dwight. So we started doing that, and at that point in our agency, they were having some real issues about people doing advanced education and staying home with their kids. We had three kids. Our oldest daughter came back and actually started the nursing program there at Biola. That's where she wanted to go. Hmm. So I figured, hey, I better go there to protect her. So I went <laughs> and get my doctorate there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and our second daughter then um, was uh, came back as a junior. So it was kind of like two years. We wanted to see, we didn't want to come back after one year. We wanted to have two years at home and then try to see if we can make sure she was off and running, the second daughter. At that point, those were two no-nos within the agencies. I was asked to leave. And so I did leave and I actually joined in uh, with Tom Graham at the uh, Center for Organizational Ministry Development right there in La Habra, California, which is what, 20 minutes from the school, that's less than that probably. And <clears throat> we did uh, leadership development, team development, and we helped mission agencies select their church planners. Hmm. And uh, Tom Graham uh, was back in the day when they set up Peace Corps and he was hired to do their, uh, he was asked to set up their whole selection process for the Peace Corps. And that's what he did. Became a Christian over time. And then uh, the, the PCA and um, asked him to, they were having tremendous attrition within their mission ranks and so forth. And so they were saying, he was telling, well, you know, your selection is going to have a lot to do with, with your attrition. And so they asked him to set things up for them. And he did that. And a number of other world team and number of other agencies and so forth. So I got to go. That's where I started meeting people outside of the New Tribes mission. And I got a bigger picture of the mission world itself. Hmm. It was a great, great time working with him. I actually worked with him for a number of years. And then I got the call from Biola to ask if I would come up and set up their, uh, come and set up the church planning track for them. And so that's what I did. And so I still keep my affiliations with, with Tom Graham and so forth, but then ended up, that's how I ended up at Biola. And you've been in Biola, Biola for um, since, uh, what year would since that be? 91-ish, somewhere okay. in there. Okay. Yeah. Great. Good. Now you still teach there. I understand you're probably phasing out. You don't even live in California anymore. You no. Live, you live in Idaho now. Today, and, it doesn't matter where you live. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You know, when I when I think of what you do, Tom, I think of probably, I don't know if this is an accurate description of you, but you're really into a communication, cross-cultural communication. Yep. And so I, I tell us a little bit about some of the things that uh, you have been teaching there 
uh, at Biola. Because we were in the Philippines, one of the things I started when doing evangelism among the Ifugao, I had a very propositional approach to it, which I did. This is the New Tribes way of doing it. That's what I did. And the audience, the Ifugao looking back at you, giving you those strange looks, you realize that, hmm, this is not flying. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Wait, let, me, let me stop. There's maybe some people that don't understand the propositional approach. So can you quickly explain okay. that? Yeah. yeah, it was, here's how you do it. It's the word of God. Then it's, here's the characteristics of God. And here's the characteristics of Satan. Here's the fall. And here's the solution. So it was very analytical in its way of presentation. Okay. And the Ifugao looked at me and thought, nobody could, when you afterwards, you know, listening to what people are, the conversations that are going on, nobody was talking about it. And I decided, okay, I'm going to try story. So the next time I was out to Baguio, I got to a Christian bookstore, bought some little children's Bible story books, brought them back place some clay, or the, their language terms underneath the, where the English was. And I just sit there and I told the stories and the turn the pages. Hmm. And it was like, grandma told the story, the young kids told the story and everybody in between. Hmm. I mean, whoa, how come I didn't know this? Hmm. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> and um, it was also at that time that Trevor McElwain, who was Australian, um, and our whole Philippine field was working on, we had a lot of syncretism and we were trying to figure out what is in our gospel message that's all messed up, that's causing people to have syncretism. And he worked among the Palawanos in the island Palawan down there. And he was playing with this concept. And eventually it would be called uh, chronological Bible teaching. I remember when I, I we did the, uh, the Ifugao then, I did evangelism. And I had the propositions, but I had stories with propositions because hmm. I couldn't get rid of my propositions. I, that's the way I was taught. That's the way my systematic theology, that's what you do, right? So right. <clears throat> um, I lined it all out, but I had stories to go with it. And I took it to Manila and McElwain was just coming back from Australia. He'd been training there for a couple of years. He had some issues with the Muslims down in Palawan. And so he was home for a couple of years. Things had calmed down. He came back. We roomed together there in Manila at our boarding or at our uh, facilities there in Manila. And so I told him what I was doing. He says, you got a back translation. And I handed it to him. He read it. And in his typical Aussie way, he said, there's a lot better way of doing it than this. Mm. <laughs> oh, my gosh. After all the work that Ifugao and I put into this thing, you know. <laughs> and so I said, okay, what is it? Then he wouldn't tell me what it was. And I was like, okay, McElwain, you're not going to bed tonight until you tell me what this, what you've been doing in Australia. Cause I knew he'd been working on stuff. Hmm. And um, so then he finally broke down. He, he started, there was no name for it at that point. He just told me what he was doing. And at that point we had a meeting going on a Southeast Asian leadership conference. So I went over the next day to our field chair and I said, man, we got to get this on the agenda. And so we did, we put it on the agenda and he taught for four hours a day. He had mimeograph notes back in the day, right? Like right. four or five, six inches high. Hmm. And he, he would just go through it lesson by lesson. I mean, there was no lesson by lesson. He, he had it broken down in his mind, but the notes were not just notes, okay? Right. And we all came back to our respective fields in Asia. And we, that's when we started. We said, we're going to put training. We're going to give everybody training in this. If you want to go this direction, you can. If you don't, you, can, you don't have to go. This is where we're headed as a field. Mm. And that was the birth of chronological Bible teaching. Mm. Southern Baptists would pick it up. 
and from Jim Slack there right in Manila, which was friends of our, our chair. And uh, a conference was held in Baguio, a conference down south in Mindanao. And they picked it up and they took it globally. Hmm. They had the money and the time and the personnel. And um, that's how it became. It's, it's a movement now. It's now 40 years old. Hmm. And um, I did a, a history of it. It's in the worldview-based storing. Uh, it came out last tw or 2018, and it has that 40-year history mm. because that has become a movement now, and orality now is something that a lot of agencies are into, whether in a good way or a bad way, they're into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about, uh, I, I guess, orality is your latest book. Is, uh, is that right? Yeah, uh, the latest one is uh, Oral Hermeneutics, The Return oh. of Oral Hermeneutics, yeah, okay. which is a branch off of the whole orality movement. Okay, good. Well, I, I want to I plug that in, uh, in just a minute, but uh, what I'm, uh, you know, there are people that are listening to this podcast that uh, they're on their journey, they're trying to figure out exactly where God would have them, whether it's here in the U.S. or uh, in Canada or uh, some other parts of the world. So uh, what is it that you believe are the areas that, uh, in terms of missionary preparation, if you were uh, talking to either someone that is uh, now in college, preparing for college, or a second career person that says, you know, uh, I'm ready to go to the field. And uh, so what are some of the areas that you think they need in terms of education now? Uh, you, you know, you're a professor at Biola University, and so I'm assuming you probably have uh, some ideas on, uh, uh, as you see different people, what they might need in their, in their missionary preparation. First, I would say, get yourself into a cross-cultural setting somewhere, whether it's here in the States, and spend a couple of weeks a month um, just going into an environment which is very, very different from your own, hmm. and see what you learn from that. And that's going to raise a lot of questions mm -hmm. in your mind. And those are the questions then you want to answer when you start going to your formal education side of it. Yeah. And in the intercultural study side of it, they have thought through um, the many areas in which the specific areas like the cross-cultural communication component. Um, and then you can get into, do you want to go TESOL, teaching English as a second language? You want to go BAM, businesses mission? You want to go... Um, church planting, there are then tracks in which you can go. You'll have to take so many courses that cover the broad spectrum of intercultural studies, which is good, and it gets some history in there, because uh, missiology should drive it. Missiology is made up of, you get into the historical component, Christianity, and how is, how it's, what happened to it over the centuries, mm -hmm. and so you learn the mistakes that people made back then, and hopefully those are the mistakes you will not make. You'll make right. new mistakes. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's the <Yeah>. goal. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. you get into the social sciences, and that's where you get your anthropology. And that gets into how people learn and how people, uh, how their worldview is formed and how you could learn that. Mm -hmm. And so because you're going to want to know every component in the Bible, you're going to want to know how they, how do they view the flood. Right. How they view creation. How they, you have to know how they view each one of those things that are going to be um, 
it will have a tremendous influence on their interpretation when you give that Bible story, whatever that happens to be. That'll you can get specific then in your field. And you and Biola, we had uh, three. Th we had the principles of uh, cross-cultural church planning, and then we had models and strategies. And so we we looked at, we we looked at the major models and strategies were were out there. And I I was never an advocate of just one model. Right. And I actually then created a model to critique models hmm. so that you could look at your cost, your, your uh, group of people that you want to work with and you could see which model will really work with these people and which ones won't. Hmm. And so rather than come with an existing model and this is what I'm going to use, let's tweak that to make it match those people that you work so that it comes across in a much more natural way. You know, uh, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, it is a br very broad subject and it's, uh, uh, you could go in a, a thousand different ways in, in terms of your preparation. But I think basically uh, for all of us, it should be a, just a continual education process. Yes. Uh, you can't do it in yeah. a semester. You can't uh, even do it in, a, in one uh, master's or uh, doctoral program. Uh, however, I do think that uh, you and I both benefited when we came off the field and we came to Biola because we had some, uh, maybe some hooks to hang on some of the subjects that uh, we were being taught. At least that was my, that was uh, yes. my experience. Yeah. I used to tell uh, Sherwood and Judy Langenfelter, you know, I have all the practice, but I don't have the theories that will challenge that practice. Mm -hmm either positively or negatively. I didn't have those theoretical models. And I said, that's why I came back to get those, to help me now rethink everything that I did in light of various windows to look through. Once I was starting to get those, I ah, oh, that's what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it gave you that background that, that was, for me, was definitely missing. I had the practice, but I didn't have the theoretical models to analyze my practice. Well, I think what you have been doing over the last several years, you have been uh, working more at the grad level. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to undergrad. Uh, I teach an online uh, undergrad cultural anthropology course. Uh, but uh, so many of my students uh, at that level, like you said, they don't have the practice, they don't have experience. And so it, um, it all kind of glazes over them and uh, it's just just a subject but when uh, like you and myself and we were at biola uh, you know you were thinking of the people you work with in the philippines and i was thinking about the people i work with in turkana and pokat and kenya and uh, so i'm assuming that you would probably uh, encourage uh, missionaries who are have been on the field uh, that maybe they take some time on their furlough to uh, get some additional courses to help them in their work yeah you it, it, you can fall behind so fast today because of the the mass increase of knowledge. I mean, I just think, just think of the narrative movement, the rally movement, I should say. Mm -hmm. That's 40 years old. And if you, if you haven't got into that, you're missing a major segment of missions, mm -hmm. major, major segment of missions of what's happening globally. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that if you don't keep up, and this is what you, uh, the, when you come home and have that extra time, or you can do the online classes. I, I prefer face-to-face, -face, but that's not going to happen, especially in this uh, pandemic that we got going right now. Um, 
to me, there's nothing like a face-to-face -face class, especially a grad level, 12 to 20 students. You pound things out, you discuss them. It's back and forth. And it is a tremendous learning experience. And I, I've never taught a class that I haven't learned something from. Yeah. And, and hopefully my students have learned something. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, I remember meeting one guy that uh, was uh, at Biola, same time we were. And, and uh, I really have kind of lost track of him, but he was told me that uh, every time he comes home uh, for any length of time at all, he, um, he takes a semester or a few classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, you know, uh, I'd like to have a degree, but uh, that's not the reason I come. He said, I'll be uh, 104 years old before I got my, <laughs> get my doctorate at this rate. But uh, he said, uh, like you said, there's things that are moving quickly. There's uh, information. And so uh, I, I just admire the fact that he was willing to continue to learn, uh, even though he'd been on the field and even though he had other responsibilities. Well, listen, Tom, why don't you talk to us real quick about uh, the two courses that uh, you, you now teach? Well, you've talked a little bit about the, the narrative course. Narrative class, yeah. And we'll go to the uh, honor-shame class, too. Um, the narrative class, I think I started that around 200, 2006 at Biola. And because of that was kind of my background where I came from, from the Philippines, around 2000, you started to hear a little bit about honor and shame in missions and so forth. Not a lot, but a little bit. 2017, then they held the first actually honor shame conference, almost 300 people at Wheaton College. And uh, I was privileged to attend that. Uh, they have now just come out with a book uh, on that. Um, it's called uh, Honor, Shame, and the Gospel. just came out, Reframing Our Message in Ministry. And uh, I have a chapter in there on the kind of the meta-narrative of Scripture. And anybody wants that, they can email me and I will send them a copy, tom.stefan at biola.edu. Um, the Honor and Shame class, then I started that one, I think it was uh, 2013, actually in Chiang Mai, Thailand. That was our first one. And what I started realizing was when I look back on my Ifugao work, I approached evangelism from a very legal perspective. And we're all sinners. You need a substitute. Jesus is that substitute. He paid for our sins. It's a legal process. You're now uh, bought with a price. You're free. You're safe. And as I presented that to the Ifugao, once again, you get these looks, okay? They could understand it. Mm -hmm but it wasn't like it hit the heart. Hmm. And so I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware that, <laughs> you know, as I grow in the Ifugao culture and the language and time there that this is not flying either. <laughs> so it's time to, to reframe this, but how do I do that? And I didn't know. And so that started my journey on learning that. And, but it would take many years before I'd ever put a course together on it. But one of the things I, if you look at, they do with three, I call them values, guilt and innocence, shame and honor, fear and power, those three. And actually it was Eugene Nida back in his, in the classic that he came out with customs and culture that he talked about those three. So that's back, what, 50s, 1954, something like that. Yeah. And um, I looked at those and I looked at the Ifugao and I tried to analyze, okay, how much, if I put percentages on those, those three, what would I give them? And then I realized, whoa, 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 whoa. 
There's another one. I think we're missing one. I've added a fourth one. You don't see it too much, but I've added it anyway. You'll see it in this in this chapter then in the book that just came out, but uh, purity and pollution. Hmm. And the Old Testament is full of it. The New Testament is full of it. And so if it's in Christianity, it's going to be in Judaism, it's going to be, be in Islam. And it's also in Hinduism, and it's also in Native Americans, First Nations people here in the U.S. Hmm. and Canada. So it's, it's a very big value that I had not thought about. And so I've added that. to. So I have four. Um, and I remember talking to, uh, at the conference there, a panel, to Jason Georges and his his 3D gospel, I said, you may have to revamp your <laughs> your book to a 4D gospel. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. And but I said that on purpose that that we don't get once again, it's a learning thing, right? right? It's a lifelong learning thing. Oh, I saw that from night. That's good enough. That's the three. That's what we have. Huh? It doesn't fit the whole world. Mm -hmm. So, well, maybe there's five or eight out there. Who knows? Hmm. I'm at four at this point. <laughs> well, for so, those that, for those that don't uh, probably there's probably some that are listening and say I don't even know what they're talking about. Uh, but basically, we're talking about uh, uh, cultures and how they approach uh, life. Some are fear cultures, some are guilt cultures, and some are honor cultures. And so that's what we're we're yeah. talking about when we're when we're discussing it. And uh, yeah. so I'm sure Mary Douglas may have had something to do with your purification, uh, purity uh, <laughs> yeah. addition, but uh, that's good. Uh -huh. well, well, Tom, we're going to have to wrap this up, but I, what okay. I'd like for you to do is, is there, um, give us, uh, well, tell us a little bit about uh, the books that you have out there. I know that uh, I've, I've, uh, I've gone to Amazon and, and typed in your name and you have several. So uh, just tell us a little bit about, uh, the ones that uh, you have published and maybe ones that uh, you recommended that uh, uh, our listeners would uh, would benefit from. Yeah. Well, uh, we talked about uh, passing the baton, church planting and power. So that is a, for the pioneer church planner going into new context uh, with an exit strategy in mind, that is what's covered in that one. And then in the orality side of it, then I did a book called Reconnecting God's Story to Ministry. And uh, we basically deprogrammed, denarratized, de-eventized, de-characterized <laughs> <laughs> our presentations in evangelism, discipleship. And this is a way of bringing back the story into evangelism, discipleship, leadership development, and the rest of it. So that's reconnecting. And then um, along with the church planning class, um, I used to have in the models and strategies, um, Steve Rundo, I used to have come into class and talk about business's mission and how that could be one of the models that are used. So we did a book then together called Great Commission Companies. And that came out for in 2003 for Urbana. About killed us to get it out in that time frame, but it, we did get it out. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so that was used in Urbana in 2003 and it's updated since, I forget the year we updated it. And then um, I started realizing in my church planning classes that most of these people aren't going to go plant churches in pioneer settings. Mm. I think, well, okay, why are you taking this class? <laughs> right. And I started realizing, oh, they're working with the local people, wherever this is at, 
and they're assisting them in the planning of the churches. I think, mm. oh, this is this is different. This is when um, you, I think you were involved in the saturation church planning stuff over right. in, in in Europe there, mm. and um, I'm looking at what what's the distinctive going on here, and I'm starting to look at. Um, okay, pioneers, where do they go? They go where there's no churches. Saturation church planning, where do they go? They go where there are churches. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, this is totally, totally different. One is where you're starting from scratch. One is where there's already churches, and for some reason, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Either it wasn't taught to them, or they didn't get it, or they don't want to get it. And so that's when I started breaking up, oh, this is facilitation in contrast to pioneering. So that's where I came up with the book then, uh, f- The Facilitator Error. And I worked off of um, Ralph Winter's um, model there, the, the three eras when he had uh, the coastlands with William Carey, the inlands with Hudson Taylor, and then you had McGavern and Townsend with the unreached people groups. And so I added a fourth era because what we're doing now, we weren't going so much to unreached peoples as we were going to reach peoples to help them reach unreached peoples. And so that was the switch. That was the fourth era. And that switches everything. Mm. And that switched Bible translation, how it's being done right now. And I think SIL in certain cases have gone too far where they don't allow any expats out. It's all locals that are doing it. That fourth era has really affected then how we do ministries today. Mm. And so a lot of mission agencies took that book and it's actually written in story format. That was fun. And I have 16 case studies to show different variations and different types of facilitation. And interestingly, you know, the one I could not find Hmm. was in TESOL. Oh, really? I could not find one at that point. And we have TESOL teachers there at our place, okay, at Biola. Hmm. And they could not find one for me. So otherwise, that would have been included in the case study. On the narrative side, then I started getting into homiletics. And I started realizing we are asking these people to be able to analyze grammar. How unnatural is that? (laughs) Mm, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Do you hear them when they're talking about a story and discussing it? They'll They'll take it and then they start taking the words and they start phrases and they start breaking the phrases up into little words and then the words into syllables. Uh, yeah, right. That is, <laughs> that is so, so unnatural. Yeah. So I started investigating that. You get, it takes you back to the Enlightenment. It takes you back to Gutenberg and so forth and the scientific world. And I started realizing our hermeneutic model is so scientific based mm-hmm. and you have to learn it it's not something you're socialized into. It becomes something intuitive and natural. You have to learn how to do this. And if that's so, then maybe there was another way of doing this. And then I started thinking, how much of scripture is actually in narrative format? And I overestimated, I think, in the beginning around 75. I have it down about 55% of scripture is narrative. And then you have the poetry, poetry section, which is a subcategory of orality. And so there's another 35% or so. So you've got at least 90% that's given to us in oral format, which leaves about 10% for the epistles. And even the epistles, I think we, have, we are so blinded by our literacy that we do not understand the oral nature of scripture. And it says, if you have what? 
ears to hear. Why did they always, when they got together, that they stand up and read this, the text? Yes, it was written text, but it was read what? out loud communally. And up till around almost to the Enlightenment, script was always considered less important than the spoken. Yeah, we had it, but the spoken was what was important. If you went and taught and you used notes, you don't know your stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, okay. because script is more important. Mm -hmm. So when you think of scripture, look through it and start looking for words like hear, speak, listen. <clears throat> they are, it's all over because they wrote scripture in a way that oral people could understand it. Mm -hmm. And we have been blinded to that. Okay, then I start taking the next step. Okay, then some of the assumptions behind the book of the return of oral hermeneutics. Let me give you a few of them. One, the first one is the spoken word preceded the written word. Oh, okay. <laughs> there is a lot of spoken word from God. And of course, Jesus was spoken word, right? Mm -hmm. And it was also all inspired word of God. And then because of our literary blinders, we don't see the oral features of scripture that are there. We just, we just miss them. Mm -hmm. Like so many, like the honor shame thing because mm -hmm. of our legal background, we don't see the relational background. We don't see the hygienic background or we don't see the power background. <clears throat> we miss those. That's our cultural. That's why we have to study, right? And that's why right. we have to have a lifelong study. <laughs> and then the, this, what we really miss is that the spoken word actually influenced how that written word was, how it came about. How many times did the Bible, does the Bible say, thus saith the Lord? <laughs> it doesn't say God, thus wrote the Lord. No, over 400 times, mm -hmm. all right? I, uh, you know, you can go on forever on this because uh, you teach a course mm -hmm. on it. And, yeah. uh, but I think what you've done is you've given us at least a flavor of what needs to be studied and how it's to, uh, and how to, uh, how to investigate it more. And so, uh, yeah. I would encourage uh, our listeners to uh, uh, go to uh, uh, Amazon or some other uh, place where you can find these resources and really uh, spend some time digging into it. Well, Tom, I really sure. appreciate your time. And uh, been a joy. I, uh, it's been uh, several years since we've uh, talked and visited. Yeah, oh, yeah. I've enjoyed it. So yeah. uh, thanks again and uh, God bless you. Same to you. Richard. Well, there are several takeaways from our discussion with Tom today. One is that the world is not static, but is always changing. And as missionaries, if we are not actively engaged as students in missions and culture, either in a formal or a non-formal setting, we are not only not keeping up with our changing world, but in fact, we may be coming irrelevant. So I would encourage you to write Tom and ask for the free download on his chapter in the book, Honor and Shame and the Gospel. His address again is tom.stephen, S-T-E-F-F-E-N, at biola.edu. This interview with Tom should be a challenge for every pastor and cross-cultural worker throughout the world. And I would encourage you to share it with others. Hey, thanks for listening. Continue to study, to grow intellectually and spiritually in the Lord. Until next time, keep Just moving forward. Hello, Mr. Swahili Nirahisi. It's no tongue twister.
No problem. Welcome, friend. It's Karibu Rafiki. Let's have some chai with lots of iliki. No problem.